My name is Jana Park. My name is Michael Claybo. My name is Greg Rumpf. I am a student at Ohio State University. I'm in customer service for Chase. I am a mom and a wife. I gave my life to Christ at a Christian rock concert in the eighth grade. I became a committed follower of Christ on the side of the road in Mexico in February of 1996. I gave my life to Christ when I was five. I've been at New Life for five years. I've been at New Life since 2007. I've been coming to New Life about six years. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I grew up in the South in a Baptist church. I grew up in a home that uh, was not really a church-going family. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is daily battling the idols in my life so that I demonstrate to others and acknowledge myself that Christ is my treasure. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is keeping Him in everyday life. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ would be consistency in my daily quiet time. I am everybody. I am everybody. I am everybody. Well, we're resuming our series in 1 Corinthians this morning, and we're going to start in chapter 7, and I'm going to read the passage to you we're looking at. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is verses 1 through 7. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. A husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. God's word this morning. So, some light, fluffy content for today. <laughs> Hope you got my email this week, kind of giving you a heads up on the uh, PG-13 level of content that Paul is heading into as we resume our study of 1 Corinthians today in chapter 7. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 7 over the course of three weeks under the header of Sex, Singleness, Marriage, and Divorce. And uh, I am convinced that the enemy does not want you to get the message that we have uh, today. And I know that because right in the middle of uh, typing out my message this week, my Mac crashed, it, which that doesn't happen with Macs usually, but there it was, the blue screen of death right in front of me, and I ended up having to redo everything. But that tells me that there's something spiritual going on and uh, that the evil one would rather that we not take to heart what we're going to be talking about today. So... Let's bow our heads together for prayer and just ask the Spirit of God to apply His Word, okay? So, Lord, we acknowledge that You are the mighty God, the ruler of all of creation. You're our creator, our maker, our redeemer. We thank You for Your Word today, Lord, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would feel the freedom to take the Word and apply it personally and individually to everybody in this room, married or single, Lord, I give you myself, my heart, my mind, my mouth, my voice. Um, please speak through me the things that you want said in the way that you want it said. And uh, we will trust you with the outcome. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you do have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. And um, just to kind of bring us all back to Corinthians, I want to remind you that the church there was a church plant. You might recall that Paul... And uh, his companions there preached the gospel in the city of Corinth, which is in Greece, and that many Jews and Gentiles repented of their sins, heard the gospel, turned in faith to Jesus Christ, and were saved. And a church was formed, a new infant fledgling church. Scholars say it may have started out with 60 or 70 people. And Paul stayed there and taught the word of God to that young congregation and shepherded them for 18 months before he turned it over to their next pastor, whose name was Apollos, Pastor Apollos. And Paul went on to preach the gospel elsewhere, and 
plant churches in other regions. But this new infant church really struggled in letting the gospel that they had embraced saturate their entire lives. Like in every congregation, this group of folks had brought into their new life stuff from their old life, old ways of thinking, old ways of relating and behaving. And uh, they struggled with distancing themselves and shedding the old life. The cultural influence around them was strong. And so living a gospel-centered, cross-centered lifestyle was proving to be a huge challenge for these young believers. And you know, it's in our hearts at New Life to, to ask God to use us to start some new churches as well. And uh, we would love to plant four churches in the next three years. But you know what? Church planting can get kind of messy because people's lives are often messy and Some of the same things that the people in Corinth were struggling with 1,950 years ago, people struggle with today. Sin still plagues people's lives, doesn't it? Pride, arrogance, division, hostility, man-centeredness, infighting, squabbles, immaturity, immorality, all of these things. Sin and rebellion has taken pretty much the same form for centuries and centuries. But the gospel of Jesus Christ makes provision for people to be freed from such sins through the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross, his blood shed, his body crushed, and then his glorious resurrection from the grave three days later makes a way for people to be set free from sin. For if the Son sets you free, the Bible says, you shall be free indeed. And so God gives to churches and church plants and congregations spiritual shepherds, pastors, whose task it is to help believers apply the gospel that they have embraced to every area of their lives and to do so in such a way that the people of God cooperate with God's transforming work in their lives. And so that's what Paul was attempting to do. Even long after he had moved on into other work, that body of believers in Corinth remained close to his heart. He loved them, and he stayed connected with them. He had some informants there. Chapter 1, verse 11, you might recall, tells us about Chloe's people. And he said, Chloe's people are letting me in on what's going on in that congregation. So I guess Jack Bauer's sidekick was having a part there and helping him be the eyes and ears of Paul in Corinth. And also there were some letters going back and forth between them that kept him abreast of what was going on there. We have two of his letters to that church in our New Testament, 1 and 2 Corinthians, but there was also a letter from them to Paul. And uh, he references that in chapter 7. We find here that he is responding to some matters that the people in the church had written him about in a letter. We don't have that letter, but uh, the next few chapters of 1 Corinthians, he is addressing four or five thorny issues that had come up in that congregation. And apparently there were at least a few people who wanted to know, well, what does Paul think? Let's write him. Let's ask him. He founded this church. He taught us the word of God. Let's find out Paul's insight into these matters. So in chapter 7, he's responding to the whole matter of singleness, marriage, and divorce. To marry or not to marry? That is the question that some were wrestling with. Now, the reason he addressed this, we can deduce, is that there was arising within that church a faction, a group of people, we could call them the pro-celibacy group. And they were advocating singleness. And they were basically saying, look, if you really want to be devoted to Jesus Christ, if you really want to be holy, then you need to abstain from getting married and you need to abstain from sexual activity. The pro-celibacy group. Now, they would have been at odds with the Jewish converts in that congregation because the Jews were taught growing up that singleness was actually a sin and that everybody should get married. In fact, there was a Jewish writer at the time who said there are seven kinds of people who won't make it into heaven, and number one and number two were unmarried men and unmarried women. So there was a problem in this church as people had different and contrasting views of marriage. The pro-celibacy group was duking it out with the pro-marriage group, and there was condemnation going on on both sides. And so they wrote Paul saying, help us out here. We've got a mess. We're not sure what to do. So he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to address this issue 
And in the first seven verses, he's going to make four declarations. First, he's going to say that being single and celibate is a good thing. Then he's going to say, while that's true, it's not for everyone. Then he's going to declare that getting married and enjoying sexual relations with your spouse is also a good thing. And then he's going to declare that both singleness and marriage should be viewed as gifts from God. So verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now I believe that what Paul is talking about here is being single, remaining unmarried. For him to say it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman is the equivalent of saying it's good to be single. Say, how do you know that? Because he reiterates that in verse 8 when he says, it is good for them to remain single as I am. And to Paul, being single meant being celibate, abstaining from sex, being sexually inactive. And we're going to see that clearly from the context here. So right up front, Paul is declaring that being single, being celibate is a good thing. But why is it good? Why is it good to be single? to be celibate. Paul elaborates later in this same chapter, verse 32, he says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So why did Paul declare the goodness of being single? For the exact opposite reason that many in our day and in our culture declare the goodness of being single. In our culture, people, even married people sometimes, long for the single life, For one reason, freedom, freedom from hassles, freedom from obligations, freedom from problems, no strings attached, keep all my options open. That's why I want to be single. That's our culture. But Paul loved singleness because it gave him the freedom to be enslaved to Jesus Christ. He said, I love being single. I wish all of you were single like me because I can give my undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul at this time of right at the time of this writing did not have a wife to be concerned about pleasing. There was no little Paul Jr. running around that he needed to provide for. He was free to devote all of his energy to Jesus and his kingdom, and Paul viewed that as a high advantage. And he challenged the singles in that congregation to view it the way that he did. And I challenge you who are single in this congregation to view it the same way. God has called some of you in this room to a life of singleness. And he did so with the intent that you would go all out for him without distraction and be fully devoted to Jesus and to his work. And so I would say with Paul, if you're single, if you have the gift of singleness, and we'll talk about that in a few, in a few moments, then go for it. Serve God with all you've got. Serve your church. Spend your evenings discipling people. Give yourself to serving Jesus Christ and his church. And you know, underpinning this church at New Life are scores and scores and scores of single people who do just that. And we praise God for you. If you're single, you should be dreaming, as many of you are, how your freedom can be maximized for the cause of Christ, both here and around the world. Take a missions trip. Take a short-term missions trip. See what God's doing on, other, on the other side of the globe. Be all in for Jesus. Amen? All in. Love him with all of your heart. So in the mind of Paul, being single and celibate was a good thing, and he said so. And that no doubt raised some eyebrows among the Jewish believers in that congregation who, as I said, had been taught that being single was a sin But Paul dispels that wrong belief. But that wasn't his final word on this subject. He follows that up by saying in verse 2, But 
because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So, simply stated, singleness is good, but being single is not for everyone. That's what he's saying. Paul loved being single. Some of you love being single. But being single can be hard. And some single people have not been given the gift of singleness, and they struggle. And one of the things Paul acknowledges that makes singleness hard is sexual desire. Now, in our culture, if you're single, but you have strong sexual desire, that's not really a problem, is it, in our culture? You just find someone who believes like you do and have sex with them without all the complications and obligations of marriage and all that stuff. You just sleep with your boyfriend or sleep with your girlfriend or sleep with your fiancé or find a host of sexual partners to hook up with. In our culture, being single and having strong sexual desire is not a problem. You just express yourself that way. But for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus Christ, that is a problem because of the constraints that have been put on us by our Lord and his design and his plan. Look again, Paul does not say in verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should find a girl who believes like him and have sex with her. What he does say is if your sexual desire is strong, a man should do what? Get married. (laughs) Have a wife. Or to to a woman, get a husband. If sexual desire is strong, get married and enjoy sex with your spouse. That's what he is saying. Now, there's some implications here. And um, these are some sensitive issues, but we've got God's word in front of us. So let's, let's dive into this. I believe that right here in this text, we see that premarital sex is prohibited by God for his people. All premarital sex. Casual sex is out. Friends with benefits is out, if those benefits include sexual favors. Living together and having sex is out. Even having sex during your engagement is out. You heard it here. This is God's design. Paul says if you have strong sexual desire and you want to be righteous, then get married. You say, well, what about that engagement thing? You know, we feel like we're nearly married. We've pledged to be married. We love each other. What's the problem with that? Well, look a little bit later in chapter 7, verses 36 and 37. He addresses this specifically. 1 Corinthians seven thirty-six. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, that was their equivalent of our engagement, Actually, it was stronger than our engagement. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them have sex. Is that what it says? What does it say? Let them marry. It's no sin. Verse 37, But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Paul is saying this. If you're engaged to someone and you feel yourself and your fiancé slipping in your affections and your embracing, you find yourselves heading down a path, what should you do? Go ahead and sleep together because you already love each other and you're committed to getting married? No. He says, let them marry. Bring that relationship under the authority of God in covenant marriage. And it's not a sin to do so, he says. Getting married is not a sin. And getting married because of strong sexual desire is not a sin. It's not the highest and noblest reason to get married. But it is an acceptable reason to the Lord. What is sinful is to go ahead and have sex when you're not yet truly married, which is in violation of God's plan and design. Sometimes people say, couples will come to us and say, so what does New Life believe about premarital sex? Where does New Life stand? Well, we believe what Paul taught. 
We believe in God's word. We believe that premarital sex in any form is wrong. It's outside of God's plan, even for engaged couples. Now, sex is not bad. God created it. But taking sex out of God's prescribed context to enjoy sexual intimacy, which is marriage, that becomes evil. That becomes sinful. So if you're here today and you're single and you are overwhelmed and consumed with sexual desire, you can conclude at least two things. One, you probably don't have the gift of singleness. Two, you better find a spouse. I'd say it this way. If a guy came and said, you know, I want to have sex, what should I do? Grow up, take responsibility, get a job, Find a wife, get married, have sex in that order. That's God's design. That's God's plan. To do otherwise is a sin. And it's sin that incites the wrath of our holy God and it caused him to nail his own son to a cross. And we need to remember that. Now, thankfully, there is grace. Amen? I mean, many of us in this room have blown it sexually. And let's just be honest. We've blown it. We have deviated from God's plan. We haven't lived under the authority of his word. And thankfully, there's grace because of a cross that the Son of God submitted to die on and gave his life, laid down his life, and shed his blood. There is grace. And today... You are in that category of believers, Christians who've blown it sexually or who are doing that right now. I would strongly urge you to repent of your sin in brokenness and humility, like we sang earlier, to kneel before the cross of Jesus and say, Jesus, please forgive me. We've been wrong. We've sinned against you. We haven't done it our own way. We haven't done it your way. We've done it our own way. And I desire the cleansing of the blood of Christ and give us your grace and strength to live in a way that's pleasing to you. Thank God there's grace. And we all need grace. Many couples who come here are living together. And uh, they start to feel convicted about that. And they come to us and want to get married. Sometimes they say, we want to get married, we want to get married next June or next October. And we're living together. What should we do? And we generally look at those couples in the eye and challenge them to repent and to live apart for a season and abstain from, from sex. And sometimes you can just see their eyes rolling like, you know, isn't this the 21st century? <laughs> isn't that so archaic and outdated and repressive and Victorian and all of that? And we say, maybe so, but do you want to honor God? Do you want to do it God's way? Then you need to separate for a season to demonstrate that you really do desire to bring your relationship under the authority of God and then come together in a marriage ceremony where you covenant your lives to each other and then enjoy each other fully. And that has happened. That has happened. You see, God invented sex. He invented marriage. And doing it his way is best for everyone involved. This is another area where Father knows best. Well, here in the text, uh, it's clear. Pre-marriage, premarital sex is prohibited by God for his people. Notice also that homosexual sex is prohibited by God for his people. Paul says each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Marriage and sex are to be heterosexual. That's God's plan. Also, spouse sharing or spouse swapping is prohibited by God in this text. Each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband, not somebody else's, not threesomes. All of that is outside the bounds, the foul lines. And then polygamy is prohibited by God for his people in this same verse. Each, excuse me, each wife should have her own husband, singular, wife. Singular, not wives, 
And so Paul writes the Corinthians and basically says, Church, God is very serious about the sanctity of marriage and the marriage covenant and his design for intimacy and sex to be enjoyed within that relationship and only within that relationship. And God has creator rights in this because he made us and he invented, as I said, sex and marriage, and ultimately it's for our own good. You know, when you do things God's way, when you sync up with your creator, with, when you're in alignment within his, with his will, it just works better because he made us in his image. So being single and celibate is good, Paul says, but it's not for everyone. Some people should get married if for no other reason than to have a righteous outlet for strong sexual desire. And then... He says, talking to married folks now, getting married and enjoying sex with your spouse is also a good thing. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. He's talking about sex. Do you get that? exactly what he's talking about. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, celibacy is good for single people, but it most assuredly is not good for married people. And all the married people said, Duh! Why did Paul have to write that? Why did he feel the need to say this? Well, it was because of that pro-celibacy camp in that church that was saying, you know, you married people are not as holy as us single people because you're having sex with each other. Apparently, there were married people who were denying their spouse's sex in the name of spiritual devotion to Christ. Sorry, honey, I'm, I'm, I'm praying. Apparently, there were some people who were claiming to be so spiritual that they were proud of the fact that even though they were married, they were refusing themselves and their spouse's sexual pleasure. And apparently, there were people who, in their puffed-up pride, were looking down on married couples who were having sex. So Paul basically makes this seemingly unnecessary statement. If you're married, have sex. But look at the interesting and kind of controversial things he says about sex in marriage. First thing he says is, it's a right. (laughs) It's something we owe our spouses. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The original word is debt. It's something we owe our spouses. It's a right and... The husbands are thinking, yeah, that's a right I want to exercise often in my marriage. When you decide, when you and your fiancé decide to be married, you are thereby giving them full rights to enjoying you fully, including your body. That's part of what marriage is. Was it not God himself who said, let the two become one flesh? Talking about sexual union and intimacy in marriage, it's God's plan. And so if you're not ready to transfer that authority, that right to your fiancé, then you're not yet ready to be married because that's part of what marriage is. Surrendering rights, surrendering authority over your body to your spouse and saying, I want to give myself to you fully. I want you to enjoy me fully. And so those who are married should, should learn to enjoy exercising their rights with each other. And if you struggle in this area, I can just hear the thoughts, but, but I don't feel like it, or he doesn't treat me right, or she doesn't treat me with respect. And certainly those are problems in a marriage that need to be addressed. But our bodies belong to our spouses for their enjoyment. To withhold sexual intimacy from your spouse is to be very unwise, and according to Paul, it would be a sin against God and against your spouse. Do not deprive 
each other, it says. But I thought it was my body to do with what I want. Well, chapter 6 says our bodies belong to the Lord if we're Christians. And now chapter 7, Paul says, your body, if you're married, belongs to your spouse. The only exception to regular, ongoing sexual relations for spouses is for spiritual reasons and by mutual consent, it says. A form of fasting. It's interesting, I got to thinking about this. What would cause a married couple to abstain from sex for a season? I thought, well, let's say you have a wayward son or daughter, a prodigal, and you're just deeply burdened for that son or daughter, to come back to the Father's house, to come back to God. And you might say to each other and agree as a couple, you know what, let's abstain from sexual relations for a season so that we can give ourselves to the Lord in prayer so that the Lord understands how serious we are about this request that we're beseeching of him to reach our son or daughter and bring them back. Or maybe you have a parent or a grandparent who doesn't know Christ and they're approaching the end of their life and you're burdened for them and you might... Say to your spouse, let's, let's fast from sex for a season and just give ourselves to prayer and beseech God so he knows how serious we are about this, that, that he would reach our loved one before it's too late. Fasting. But then, he says, come together again, just for, for an agreed-upon season of time, and then come together again. I want to say this, if you're married and you are using sex to manipulate your spouse somehow to get something you want, this is not good in God's sight. If you are withholding sex from your husband or your wife to punish or penalize or teach them a lesson, you are sinning against them and against God and you need to repent in humility and brokenness. Sex in marriage is not for bargaining. Paul states that withholding sex from your spouse can give Satan an opening in your marriage. Do you see that? Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know what happens when you as a spouse start pulling back and withholding from your spouse? Resentment begins to creep into your spouse's heart. Adultery begins to look more and more appealing. Fantasies begin to be acted out in the mind of your spouse. You are entering a danger zone big time if you're withholding from your spouse. It gives Satan a foothold. I'm so grateful that on our team here, we have a marriage counselor. And we have partners that we've partnered up with in the community who are specialists at addressing these kinds of marital issues from a biblical and God-centered viewpoint. And I would so encourage you, if you're a couple, married couple and you're struggling in this area, talk to someone. Talk to a pastor about it. Just... Humble yourselves and talk to a pastor about it and say, we, we think we might need some help because we're just struggling here. We'll try to link you up with the best helper for you. Well, Paul's angle here is interesting. Earlier, he said that marriage is God's plan for couples to avoid fornication. If your sexual desire is strong, get married. Now he declares that sexual satisfaction in marriage is God's design for avoiding adultery. It's clear from the text that husbands and wives have a duty to offer sexual relations to each other in such a way that the temptation to adultery is significantly weakened. The implication is that husbands and wives should satisfy each other sexually so that their eyes and their hearts do not roam after satisfaction elsewhere. To me, an implication of this is that husbands and wives need to talk to each other about this area of their life. Some find that extremely difficult, extremely awkward, extremely sensitive, but I would challenge you, encourage you, if you don't talk about this with your spouse, to open up that conversation. Take the risk. Talk about what is satisfying and what is not satisfying in your marriage. And now I want to tread on some sensitive ground, as if we haven't been already, and talk about a few of the elements that make up sexual satisfaction in marriage. And there's some that are stated or implied right here in this passage. And the first one is the frequency of sex. In verse 5, Paul says that the frequency of sex 
matters. He says that married couples should not abstain very long from sexual relations lest they fall prey to the temptation of adultery. And so frequency is one element that makes up the satisfaction of sexual relations. And no, I'm not going to attempt to answer the question that is rattling around in your mind right now. You need to figure that out for yourselves. Talk. Decide together. Frequency is one element. Secondly, is physical attractiveness, physical attraction. And I know this is a very sensitive and complex area. It's sensitive because there are many things about ourselves that we cannot change, about our bodies and so forth, and other things that are hard to change. It's complex because the inner union of two people can cause them to see beauty in each other that no one else sees. Nevertheless, one man says this, if it is true that being physically attractive to each other is part of what makes sexual relations satisfying, then this text implies that husbands and wives have a spiritual duty to try and be attractive to each other. Now, none of us are going to measure up to the sex symbols of our day that are paraded in front of us on the television and on screens. None of us are going to look like that. But somewhere between being totally obsessed with our appearance and totally neglectful of what our spouse would want us to look like or wear or smell like, somewhere there needs to be a balance in there. I mean, if you're a guy and you haven't bathed in like a month or shaved in a month, I mean, that's a problem. No, we'll just leave that. Frequency matters, physical attractiveness, keeping ourselves physically attractive to our spouses is a factor in sexual satisfaction. And, of course, third, just the overall quality of the relationship, right? I mean, if there's anger and hurt and bitterness and frustration and you're at odds with each other and you can't agree on what to do with the kids and all that, it's not going to be real hot in the bedroom. We understand that, right? When we're in that kind of, you know, opposing adversarial relationship with each other, we barely touch each other, let alone embrace, let alone come together in sexual intimacy. And so this text, I think, is also an exhortation to humble ourselves and repent and seek forgiveness and renewal in our marriages, which means going to your spouse, as I do and I hope you do, and when it's appropriate, saying, honey, I I was wrong. I was wrong. I, I so blew it. I am so sorry. I so desire your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? Man, those words can just be a huge blessing and and restorative in a marriage. Notice he says, come back together again as a married couple so that Satan may not tempt you. Did you know that Satan uses sexual desire? We know this, don't we? Satan did not create sexual desire. God created sexual desire. And because God created it, it was a good thing in its original state. But sometimes we blow it all out of proportion and stimulate it all out of proportion to where it becomes life-dominating and Satan can use it. It's not sinful or satanic to feel sexual desire. But one man wrote this, when sexual desire rises, Satan shifts his missile carriers into high gear. The rise of sexual desire does not mean victory for Satan, but it does mean vulnerability to Satan. I implore you as a married person to married people, please, please take this very seriously. Please take it seriously. I do. The level of your sexual satisfaction in your marriage matters. I have friends, pastor friends, as some of you know, who did not give attention to this, who did not take it seriously. And Satan got his grimy fingers into their lives and drove a wedge between them and their spouse. And today they're out of the ministry. DQ, disqualified from ministry because they grew lax in this area. We know that Satan would love nothing better than to drive a wedge between married couples. And he's good heard the story of a man who was on an international flight and sitting next to him was another gentleman. And of course, on international flights, they still serve meals. 
because you might be in the air for eight or nine hours. And so the flight attendant came down the aisle and she was serving meals and this man's passenger curiously declined the meal. And it piqued this guy's interest and he asked him, well, that's interesting, why did you turn that meal down? And he said, well, because I'm fasting and praying. The guy said, really, what are you fasting and praying about? He said, well, I'm praying to Satan that he will attack and destroy the marriages of ministers, of pastors. I'll tell you what, Satan is all in for adultery. Satan loves adultery. He loves to seduce formerly satisfied spouses into new relationships, online, emotional, sexual. It doesn't, you know, he's not overly particular as long as he sabotages and hijacks the marriage He's good with using all kinds of different means. So you get that Facebook friend request from your flame in high school, right? Or college. And it comes to you and you're sitting at your computer screen and you're married and your, your marriage is fine and you look at that Facebook request that's happened to me recently and you go, hmm, kind of curious. I'd like to know what they're up to now. What's going on? Do you know how many marriages have been wrecked by, I don't want to say by Facebook, but by, but by the reconnection in our technolo- technological age with someone who, with whom you had a relationship years and years ago? We've got to be diligent, as Peter said. Be aware, be diligent. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, wanders around seeking someone to devour, and it might be you if you're not careful. Remember the word this morning. When you battle with sexual temptation, you battle against Satan. Not because he creates the desire, but because he so powerfully and deceptively uses the desire. So if you're married today, let's remember that frequent, enjoyable, satisfying sex in marriage forms a safeguard, forms a barrier, forms a wall against Satan's insidious plan to seduce us into adultery. Because when we're satisfied in our marriage, we will say, God's gift of sex in my marriage is so much better than any cheap substitute that the enemy of my soul might dangle in front of me. Or being translated, why would I settle for Wendy Burgers when my husband or wife is serving up Outback Prime Rib in my marriage? Why would I settle for this when this is so wonderful, it's glorious, it's what God intended, and it's just us. It's exclusive. So Paul writes to this, infant fledgling church and says, look, being single and celibate is a good thing. But being single is not for everyone. Some of you should get married and enjoy sex together as married spouses, and that's a good thing. God is pleased with that. And then the final thing he says in this section is this, verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. He's talking about being single. I wish everybody was single like me, Paul is saying. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so the fourth thing he's saying is this, both singleness and marriage should be viewed as gifts from God. That's what he's saying. Each one has his own gift. Charisma is the word. So add to your list of spiritual gifts, singleness and marriage. Gifts from God. Marriage is a gift from God, he says. And so is singleness. Paul believed that he had been given the gift of singleness, but he understood that not everybody was given that gift. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, well, I'm single and I chafe under my singleness sometimes. How would I know if I have been given the gift of singleness? Well, I think from the context of this passage, we see that the gift of singleness must be the gift of being able to be single and not be consumed by lust, by sexual desire. It's the gift of being single and being content to live without having a lifetime covenant partner with a spouse. Paul said, I'm single, I love it. Now, he apparently at one time was married because he had been a Pharisee, and in that day, Pharisees had to be married. So we don't know if his wife left him or if she died. We're not sure, we're not told. But at this time, Paul was single 
And he said, you know what? I love being single because I can give my undivided devotion to God and his kingdom. Living in undistracted devotion. And he unabashedly promotes it to other people for the same reason. No doubt Paul had Jesus himself in mind, who was also single and who affirmed singleness when in Matthew 19, 12, he said, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. To marry or not to marry? That's the question. Singleness is good. Marriage is good. They're both gifts from God. God's gifts are always good. The key issue is this. What has your Lord called you to do? That's what needs to be discerned. Has he given you the gift of singleness and and called you to a life of undistracted devotion to him and his plan? If so, I would encourage you, rejoice in that. Be content in that. Don't let the snide remarks from married people rattle you. Develop a Teflon-coated heart. Just let it slide off. Just realize in your heart, they don't really understand. They don't really know what they're, what they're saying. I've been given the gift of singleness, and I rejoice in that. I exult in that. And know that God has a plan, and his plan is good. Or has the Lord given you the gift of marriage? If so, there is a spouse out there, a lifetime partner in God's plan for you. And I would say this to you. If you are married today, you have been given the gift of marriage. Okay? Do not go home to your spouse and say, Hey, Pastor Steve was talking about the gift of singleness, honey. I think I have it, so I'm out of here. (laughs) Do not do that. If you're married, you have the gift of marriage. Make it work. Enjoy your spouse. Serve your spouse sexually. Work hard to keep your relationship strong and pure. Give yourself to your spouse often. Give yourself to your spouse wholly. And know that God is pleased with that. And if you are single and looking to be married one day, please, I implore you, resolve to do it God's way. His way's better. I could parade up here people who would tell you from their own experience, God's way is better. It's better. Father knows best. He does. And if you are married today, but you're struggling in your marriage, just know you're not alone. A lot of married couples, a lot of spouses are struggling in their marriage. And I would implore you, seek help. Statistics tell us that most married couples, when they reach a a certain threshold in struggling and problems, they, they can't restore things themselves. They need help. Humble yourself. Talk to a pastor. Ask for help. God will bless that. Well, I think Paul would say, as followers of Christ, let's all strive to understand how this gospel that we have embraced, the death of Jesus for our sins and his glorious resurrection, how embracing that gospel can and should be lived out in our day-to-day lives and in particular in our relationships. And so I want to finish this morning by asking you to stand, if you would, and we're going to read together a scripture from Titus 2, 11 through 14 that describes and depicts the kind of redeemed life that God calls his people to live. So let's read this aloud together. Here we go. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Would you bow with me in prayer? And if you are being baptized in a few moments, you can go ahead and begin to make your way up to the changing rooms and get ready for that. Let me pray for us. Father, we are the people of God. We are your people. 
And I pray, Lord, that in our hearts we would not sit in judgment over your word, but that we would place ourselves under the authority of your word. And Lord, even though it goes counter to the culture that we live in and most of the messages we get from our society and our media and our entertainment culture, Lord, may we, because of the power of the Spirit in us, live under the authority of the Word of God. And we know that you know what's best. And so I have several requests for you this morning, Lord. I pray for those among us right now who are single and have the gift of singleness. And I pray that they would not chafe under that, that they would not um, be discouraged by the remarks of other people, but that they would rejoice in it. And even through the scripture today, see that it's a wonderful gift from you and embrace it, and that they would just go all out in serving you with undivided devotion. I thank you for the scores and scores of singles who serve faithfully in and through this church. Such a blessing. Would you let them know that today, that they're a huge blessing to this body of believers? Lord, I pray for those who um, are not married but want to be, hope to be, believe that's in your plan for them. I pray that you would use the message today to cause them to choose and resolve to choose only your best in this matter and not to settle for anything less. I pray for married couples. Lord, some right now are feeling convicted because they know they've been withholding affection and intimacy from their spouse, and and you've convicted them of that. And I pray a conversation would take place soon in that home or in the car, and Lord, you would begin the process of brokenness and repentance and healing and restoration. May Satan not be allowed to get his grimy fingers into the marriages of this church, Lord, I pray. Lord, for those whose marriages are really in trouble on the rocks, Lord, may you prompt them to seek out help or to talk with a pastor, to unburden themselves and open themselves up. And Lord, because of their humility, will you pour grace into their lives and begin process of tearing down the wall that's been built up between them and their spouse. Lord, we declare that we need you. We're grateful for the Spirit of God that lives in us and grants us the strength to do these things. May we truly be that purchased people that we just read about, redeemed, zealous for good works, that we might reflect you to the people around us. And I offer this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.